Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 28, The Year of Peace and Consul for Life. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope you all enjoyed our latest episode on the Haitian Revolution as well as the Doom Leclerc Expedition. As you can tell, it did not take me a full three weeks to put out this last episode, so yay me. But in all seriousness, I did want to thank everyone again for their patience and waiting for the publication of the previous episode, and I do hope that should anything delay an episode to such an extent in the future, that I will notify everyone beforehand so that you all are not left hanging in the dark. But with that said, let's continue with where we left off last episode, and that is to pick up our story back again at the start of 1802, just after the signing of the Peace of Amiens, and how this tentative peace was well, seemingly doomed from the very beginning. And as we mentioned two episodes back, the signing of Amiens was celebrated with near unprecedented jubilation throughout Europe. Friends from across the channel could now see each other for the first time in what seemed like a decade, trade wasn't hampered by constant warfare, and people from all over Europe could come to France to see the man who had brought peace upon Europe. And Napoleon, too, seemed to oblige in some sort of Anglophilia, reportedly displaying busts of the Whig leader Charles James Fox and, curiously enough, of Admiral Nelson at the Tuileries. Now, the display of Fox, who was well known to have had Francophile tendencies, was not such a surprise, but to see a bust of Admiral Nelson, the man who essentially ended Napoleon's chance at complete French domination in the Middle East, well, that certainly was noteworthy. And you can bet that that bust wouldn't last too much longer, however, and it certainly was going to be crushed to sand after the news of Trafalgar three years later, but we'll have time for that a little bit later on. What's curious, though, is that the admiration that some British had for Napoleon isn't all that surprising. Many Brits, especially the liberal-minded and the Whigs, felt that Great Britain in 1802 was mired in some quasi-ancien regime themselves, and they longed for a man who would lead them the same way that Napoleon had led the French. Autocratic, sure, but with the ideals of the Enlightenment and liberalism. Lord Melbourne, who would later become Prime Minister of Britain, would write odes to Napoleon in his diary, and writer Lord Byron designed his own coach in the exact same manner as the one Napoleon had used in his carriage. Napoleon would meet with many of the steam British elite at the time, including Fox, the Earl of Aberdeen, another future Prime Minister, scholar G.H. Glass, Sir Spencer Smith, among others. And then on the other side, the numerous French flocked to Britain as well for the same reason, eager to meet many of the scholarly minds who had been so influential in the economic and philosophical writings of the day. In fact, naturalist James Smithson even remarked that both countries seemed to be, quote, exchanging inhabitants. Of course, we all know that this would not last, but in the moment, it had to have felt like a lifetime had gone by since a Frenchman had stepped on a British shores without need of exile. Now, this isn't to say that once peace was established that everything was hunky-dory on both sides of the channel. Far from it. 
You see, both the French and the British used the peace to send spies and secret agents across the waters to scope out potential landing spots for any future invasion of the other country should hostilities resume. But that was the point. Use the peace's leverage to gain intelligence as a deterrent for any future conflicts. Napoleon had spies captured on Irish shores. The British had theirs captured at Bordeaux and Calais. Every side saw it as a zero-sum game. But in reality, there was little stopping either side. And in hindsight, there was little information that the French could have gathered that would have changed their future situation. Britain was the master of the seas, and the French, no matter how hard they wanted to do it, were unable to do anything about it. Now, while all this was going on, there was still politiquing going on in Paris. Sure, French-British relations had been temporarily restored, but there was still much to do about the situation in France itself. Now, we already discussed Napoleon's Haitian ulcer last week, so we won't bring that up other than to say that while all of this was going on, Leclerc had just recently landed in Le Cap and was in the process of pushing his way to near full control of Saint-Domingue. But just as Leclerc was seemingly reasserting French dominion on the island, and no doubt the news had yet to reach Napoleon, though I'm sure the good news from earlier campaigns had given him pause to gloat in yet another military victory, Napoleon was beginning to use the capital he had gained over the previous few years to completely change the political dynamic of France. Now, look, we all know that Napoleon ascending to the position of first consul was more ceremonial than anything else. The government, and likely all of France, knew that he was a man who would keep that position for the foreseeable future, no matter what the tenure dictate stated. And again, as we mentioned earlier, everyone was perfectly okay with that. I mean, who would want to overthrow the man who just made peace with the goddamn British, after all? Well, certainly not the French Senate, who in May of 1802 presented a motion to extend the existing consulate term for another 10 years. This was when the present term was not set to expire until 1810, yes, eight years from the present. Only one senator, ex-Girondon, the Comte de Langeoigny, voted against it. When Napoleon was presented with the information, he played the part of Julius Caesar to an absolute T. He acted as if he were being dragged into the forum to continue his saving of France, that he would only do it if the people allowed it to be so. It was, of course, disingenuous and not the least bit staged, but... Again, this was the point. Napoleon had to portray himself as a noble, democratically chosen martyr, lest he become nothing more than another Robespierre. So, much like in 1800, he put the Constitution of Year 10 to the masses. And yes, like the Constitution of Year 8, the Constitution of Year 10 was approved by a not-at-all-rigged election by an astounding 3,653,600 to 8,272. It was, allegedly, the first plebiscite in French history in which the vote was taken by over 50% of the eligible population, but, well, let's just say that a few votes were counted doubly. And, of course, let's not forget the ones that happened to be chicken-scratched out or chicken-scratched in another direction. But, hey, it is tough to become a dictator if you only win by a few percentage points. And so, with that, Napoleon became Napoleon Bonaparte, first consul for life. In all of his wildest dreams, it's likely his wildest was to become Julius Caesar. And on 16 Thermidor, year 10, or in the Gregorian calendar, August 4th, 1802, Napoleon became just that. British peer and known Napoleon file, Lord Holland, later wrote, quote, His manner was neither affected nor assuming, 
but certainly wanted that ease and attraction, which the early habits of good company are supposed exclusively to offer. In other words, he acted humble, but knew that what had just happened was what was supposed to happen all along. As great a commander as Napoleon was, and certainly would be, he was equally to the consummate, ruthless politician. Now, he was first consul for life, absolute dictator in all but name. And now, as absolute dictator, Napoleon used Amiens as an opportunity to further the French financial situation. You see, for those of us who are big fans of history, we know that with the turn of the 18th century came the rush of the Industrial Revolution, and France was positioned across the country, i.e. Britain, that was vast becoming a global superpower on the backs of factories and their workers. Now, Napoleon was not ignorant of this fact. And indeed, he knew that in order to compete with the British economically, France would have to increase her industrial output substantially. But ravaged by years of revolution, wars, and political instability, there was just not a feasible way that France would be able to get up to the same speed that the British were afforded. Indeed, it has been stated that by the time the French were defeated at Waterloo in 1815, that their industrial output was on par with the British of 1780, nearly 40 years earlier. Napoleon then issued other forms of economic reform. He invested heavily in government subsidies and in strategic industries, such as agriculture and ironworks. Can't build weapons without solid blacksmiths, am I right? Technical training, vocational schools, prizes for inventions, and learning how the British industry works. See economic espionage. And while he was never able to get to the GDP levels that were seen across the channel, Napoleon brought a sense of economic stability that his predecessors were unable to do in decades. By 1802, some 20 economic committees were founded in order to address the economic issues of the day, and he was only getting started. But another issue he needed to figure out was the age-old question of his succession. Initially, Napoleon's successor was announced as his brother, Joseph, as Josephine was nearing age 40 and had yet to produce him an heir, something which we all know she was unable to do. But Napoleon was still ignorant of this fact, and would try everything in his power to see to it that Josephine would get the best possible fertility treatments possible at that time. She would attend spas and pseudoscientific clinics, and Napoleon would support her every attempt, but they were, of course, all in vain. But now, with Napoleon's position as first consul for life firmly established, the question of succession was one which seemed to be talked about as an open secret. Surely everyone, save for Napoleon, had not expected Josephine to birth another child so late in her life, but that did not stop him from the hope that one day he would have his own Napoleon II. And we know that one day he would, but just not with Josephine. But I digress. The succession questions were not as important to Napoleon in 1802 as they would be, say, in three years' time while he was out on campaign. Because now, with the peace established and his position as first consul for life confirmed, he set up consolidating a political apparatus that would be made up of men who owed their entire careers to him, something which would lessen the threat of assassination as well as a potential coup. Napoleon began addressing the Senate using only his Christian name, something which harkened back to the days of the Bourbon dynasty. The electors of the Electoral College can vote in for life, and they were chosen amongst the highest paid 600 people in their department. From here, they would nominate members of the legislative body and the tribunate, with Napoleon having the final choice. As you can imagine, 
he would approve of those only loyal to him. Again, the farce of democracy hid the true face of his authoritarianism, as well as the iron grip he had on the country. But again, it was necessary to gain faith in the people. And Napoleon also did his best by hearkening back to the Roman emperors that he had so fondly admired by announcing circuses in remembrance of the Brumaire coup, his ascension to consul for life, and for his survival in the assassination plot of the Rue Saint-Niquet. He did this for a few reasons. One was to distract the population from a growing grain shortage, as the previous winter had led to a terrible harvest in 1802, as well as to distract them from Napoleon sending Berthier over to Elba to help seize the island and prevent it from becoming part of the new Italian Republic. Now, he wasn't technically violating Amiens with this, as the British had already abandoned the island and they anticipated that the French would do so anyway. But it was just another example of him not being able to fully shake the military itch, as well as to continue to establish a sphere of influence on the Mediterranean. The mission was successful, and Napoleon intended to fully francify Elba, including sending some of the children of the local elite back to Paris to receive a, quote, proper education. Nothing like sending a couple of good Italian boys back to France to learn the right way to live. It had worked for him, right? But Elba, as it would turn out, was not the main or the first play here. And it was clear right from the beginning that we can see how disingenuous Napoleon truly was about Amiens or any of its lasting aims. In September of 1802, he ordered another expedition to the Middle East, though this time it was under the auspices of diplomacy as a goodwill tour to promote French economic interests in the region. Now, while this likely upset the British, you can forgive Napoleon from believing that, in peacetime, being able to trade with a former enemy was strictly forbidden. Though, I'm sure many of the locals, who only a few years earlier were slaughtered at the behest of his sword, had slightly different sentiments. But almost simultaneously, Napoleon also uh, invited King Charles Emmanuel of Piedmont to return to his throne in northern Italy, but Charles declined, likely fearing that he would be used merely as a puppet, and that's exactly the plan Napoleon had in mind. So Charles Emmanuel stayed in Sardinia, and Napoleon, not one to deal with pretenses, simply annexed Piedmont on September 21st and turned it into six new French departments. Nothing wrong here, just giving France a little bit more of Italy. I mean, it was right there anyway, what's the big deal? Because Piedmont, then as now, was a vitally important region, which was the exit point from the Alpine passes from France and also led to the fertile plains of Lombardy. And with France now a little low on grain and without a physical presence in Egypt, having access to the plains of Lombardy was, well, convenient. Now, while Egypt likely made the British scoff, Napoleon's actions in Piedmont put them into quite the tiffy. You see, Warhawks in Parliament were already weary of his sincerity to begin with, but now the general British public were beginning to look at Napoleon as enemy number one again. And while his actions in Elba, Egypt, and Piedmont did not violate the letter of the Treaty of Amiens, it almost certainly violated the good-natured trust that both countries had hoped to develop following its signing. And Britain now was far less likely to abandon Malta, knowing full well that doing so would leave all of the Italian coastline open to French advances. But while Piedmont certainly enraged the British, it would be Napoleon's actions in another country that would really set them on the path to abandoning the treaty altogether. And while we've mentioned this country a few times in passing during the series, let's spend some time on one of the world's richest, safest, 
and yet most puzzling nations, France's longtime neighbor, Switzerland. Now look, to delve into all of Swiss history would likely take an entire podcast series on its own, but by the time Napoleon had come to power, the Confederation of Switzerland was a conglomeration of complex politics dominated by rifts between aristocratic and populist cantons that spoke either German, Italian, or French. But then, as now, Switzerland posed a pivotal point of strategic location for the French, and Napoleon was keen to bring them into the fold. Situated between France, Germany, and Italy, and at the time between the Holy Roman Empire, France, and the Italian states, its location for Napoleon proved essential in offsetting a potential restart of hostilities between France and the Holy Roman Empire. And so, on September 23, 1802, Napoleon would write to Talleyrand that he needed the border with Switzerland secure and that there had either be, quote, a Swiss government solidly organized and friendly to France or, in turn, no Switzerland. So, on September 30th, Napoleon ordered the Act of Mediation, which reorganized Switzerland into 19 cantons. Yes, you heard that correctly. Napoleon reorganized another country's internal divisions to his own liking. And, as crazy as it sounds, it wasn't that difficult. Switzerland's weak central government and even weaker army made his decree all but impossible to resist. Napoleon would later write in summation of what he thought of the Swiss, saying, quote, There are no people more impudent or more demanding than the Swiss. Their country is as about as big as a man's hand, and they have the most extraordinary pretensions. Now, just for good measure, Napoleon sent Michel Ney and his 40,000 men to Switzerland to ensure that the act of mediation was enforced, and it was, indeed, enforced. The Act of Mediation was a complete violation of the Treaty of Luneville, which did mention Switzerland specifically, but the Austrians, Prussians, and Russians did nothing in response and essentially just let Napoleon take it. So, lest we think that Neville Chamberlain was the first man to openly engage in appeasement of a tyrannical dictator, let us not forget Switzerland in 1802. But ironically, given the event 136 years later in Munich, it was the British who saw the annexation of Switzerland as a step too far. Despite not violating Amiens, their protests came furiously. They refused to hand back Pondicherry to France and the Cape of Good Hope to Holland, and her troops would remain in Alexandria and, more importantly, in Malta. But through Switzerland... Napoleon was able to gain his first glimpse at one of his future marshals of France, and one who would turn out to be one of his very best, Michel Ney. Now, as I've mentioned a few times already, I am going to do an episode on all of Napoleon's marshals, so do be aware of that and keep that on the back burner. And Ney will obviously be included in there, but it's worth noting that for being one of Napoleon's finest field commanders, he had never met the man until the year before. Indeed, Many of his future marshals he had already served with in field or had commanded on campaigns, but Ney was an exception. Ney had served in the northern campaigns during the French Revolutionary Wars and, as we already know, served under Moreau at Hohenlinden. Thus, he never really had a chance to cross paths with Napoleon the soldier, the general, or now the first consul. After Hohenlinden, however, he was invited to Paris to meet the consuls in May of 1801, and Napoleon, impressed with his service in the army of the Samhain Meuse, knew he had a new toy to play with. 
and Switzerland proved to be the perfect playground to test out this shiny new toy. Ney was able to capture Zurich without bloodshed, completely dissolved the diet of the Switch Canton, released pro-French sympathizers from prison, suppressed any anti-French insurrections, which, you know, probably didn't surprise anyone, and he was even able to convince the Swiss to, hmm, quote, pay for the entire campaign. See, looted. He did all of this in about eight weeks, and Napoleon suddenly had secured most of northern Italy and all of Switzerland. So shortly after Ney's successful march, Napoleon told the Swiss delegation a saint Cloud in December of 1802 that, quote, it is recognized by Europe that Italy and Holland, as well as Switzerland, are at the disposition of France. Britain, however, did not recognize this at all and demanded compensation for the rearrangement, see annexations, of France's neighbors. Britain, interestingly, had asked only for Malta, but Napoleon refused. It's interesting, because to think that he had made that concession, how different the course of the following few years might have been. But, as they say, hindsight is always twenty-twenty. The British public, though, was, again, incest at his brazen attempts to reshape Central Europe, where there was no illusion of what they wanted to see happen to the French dictator. Now, while it was far from universal, numerous British papers, including some written by French emigres, were pretty explicit in their hopes that should another Rue Saint-Niquet plot be put in motion, that this time it would be uh, successful. Now, much of this infuriated Napoleon, of course, and he did try in vain to prosecute some of these emigres and have them deported back to France, but this was to no avail. Napoleon was never truly able to grasp the concept of the freedom of the press, certainly not from a supposed ally who, in essence, was tolerating terrorism in its press, especially after he was nearly killed just two years earlier. But as British historian Andrew Roberts notes, Napoleon's rise to power coincided with the rise in the power of many of Britain's characterists, and Napoleon proved to be the perfect subject for their tabloid sales. Displaying him as a small, petulant, and childish man, it is through much of these characters that we get the so-called Napoleon complex. And while it's almost cliche now to say that Napoleon was of average height for his day, for much of modern history, he was seen as a small, hot-headed man commanding a powerful army. Now, much of that is in no small part to the British cartoonists who published this image all over Europe. And indeed, as Robert notes, quote, in an age when absolutely everything was regarded as a fit subject for an ode. One was entitled, quote, on a drunk old woman who was accidentally drowned on a ferry crossing. Napoleon's supposed crimes excited an avalanche of poetry, none of it memorable. Now this notwithstanding, Napoleon himself was no dummy. Despite his seemingly jovial overtures, Napoleon at heart was a tremendous Anglophobe. He dreamed the dream of being the next William the Conqueror, wiping out the English at Hastings and establishing a new Norman conquest. In fact, I'd imagine it being some sort of morbid dream, but who knows. Napoleon was a big thinker and dreamer, so we can only conjecture here. But, I mean, I digress. What I'm really trying to get at is that Napoleon was well aware that Amiens was, from its signing, tenuous and likely not going to last. And by the start of 1803, it was becoming far more apparent to both sides 
that its days were indeed numbered. Now, Napoleon began to lament out loud that France was starting to become a little too Anglophilic, hanging too many British works in the Louvre, publishing too many of her writers, and hosting too many of her diplomats. He would often refer to Amiens as a truce rather than a treaty, and that much of its fragility lay squarely in the hands of the British government. But as we've seen already in this episode, in reality, the fault lay mostly with Napoleon's policies. But again, it would be folly to think that it was only Napoleon who did not act in good faith towards France. As I mentioned, spies were ever-present from both countries. The British still largely protected the emigres inside her borders, including those bastard Bourbons. And, like France, did not honor her territorial obligations that were clearly stated in Amiens. For a treaty as monumental as Amiens was in theory, for it to work in practice, good faith had to be displayed by both sides. And, as we've mentioned right from the start, it was not. Britain's King George III, who was at this point not completely crazy, himself called the Amiens Peace an experiment. And it was becoming clear to both sides that the experiment had failed, and Napoleon began to venture even further out to test the limits on Britain's patience. In January of 1803, Napoleon's envoy to Egypt returned home and speculated that another French expedition could retake the country with less than 10,000 men. Now look, it was a bold-faced lie, of course, but its findings were published in the French newspaper Moniteur, which was obviously read across the channel and was seen as a direct provocation especially since it mentioned a possible France-Russia alliance that sent shivers down the spines of every Briton Turk east of the Caucasus Mountains. And indeed, having the possibility of such an alliance likely would have been grounds for a restart of conflicts in and of itself, but to see it in writing? Well, you can bet the halls of Westminster were filled until the early morning hours already drumming up the plans for resumption of hostilities. But Napoleon didn't authorize such a publication, and there's likely little evidence he even drew up a second invasion plan for Egypt. Well, at least not as early as 1803. And he certainly wasn't foolish enough to have these plans published for the masses to see all across Europe. But, again, he knew that with each passing day, every one of his victories on the battlefield faded further and further into the dustbin of history, especially in the minds of the English. And even keeping Napoleon's immense Anglophobia in mind, to his credit, he did try to make overtures to his British counterparts about keeping the peace going, so far as to even form an alliance. Quote, Let us unite rather than fight over this, and together we will decide the future of the world, he wrote to British Ambassador Whitworth, who, well, likely took the words as nothing more than pure bluster. And, to be fair, while it's difficult to truly understand Napoleon's intentions in these overtures, given his future attempts at securing alliances with say, Russia, one cannot definitively say it wasn't without some merit. But Whitworth, for his part, saw no such sincerity, telling Prime Minister Addington, quote, I thought I was listening to a captain of dragoons and not to the head of the greatest state in Europe. And so, with that, Napoleon began to cast a wider net. In February of 1803, the Holy Roman Empire began their final approvals of land transfers to France and the compensation for their princes who were now to become French subjects. Napoleon, understanding the importance of securing these alliances, began the process of marrying off many of those in his inner circle to the top families of Bavaria, Baden, and Württemberg. 
Now, this would help offset the influence of the Habsburgs and the Hohenzollerns, the families who would be at war with him for the next 12 years, though he did feel it necessary in order to combat Britain's influence on the continent. Then, in March of that year, Napoleon sent a delegation to India to scope out the possibility of having a French army presence there once again, since, you know, that worked out so well the first time. But this time, though, he did so under the pretense that France would not be the masters of the sea, and thus would need to decide on the feasibility of such a campaign if it were to be done only on land. His delegation courted the local princes and the population to seeing how they would assist in a potential campaign, which Napoleon thought wouldn't start until at least late 1804. Even he had no idea, less than two months later, the short-lived peace between Europe's two greatest powers would come to a sudden end. Now, once news of this arrived at Britain's door, King George delivered a speech to Parliament asking them for war supplies and to prepare the militias. He was under the impression that the French were doing the same in their northern and Dutch ports, but many historians dispute this claim, and it could just be seen as a tit-for-tat response to Sebastiani's report from Egypt earlier that year. Napoleon, however, did not take kindly to the threat and accosted Whitworth, accusing the British of threatening peace and wishing nothing but another 15 years of war with France. Quote, The English want war, he said to the ambassador of Russia and Spain, but if they are the first to draw the sword, I will be the last to return it to the scabbard. They don't respect treaties. From now on, they must be covered with black crepe. Speaking directly to Whitworth, their exchange was recorded as such. Why the armaments? Why are these precautionary measures aimed against us? I don't have a single ship of the line being built in French ports, but if you are arming, I must also. If you want to fight, I will fight too. You might perhaps kill France, but you won't intimidate her, Napoleon said. No one wishes to do either, Whitworth replied. We want to live on good terms with her. Then one must respect treaties. They will be responsible for this to all of Europe, Napoleon concluded. Now, the exchange was reported to have taken place in front of over 200 people, and Napoleon was so agitated that he had to retire back to his apartment. But one can certainly understand his frustration. Remember, at this time, the Leclerc expedition was still underway, de Caen was still in India, and Napoleon had only recently begun to roll out his economic reforms. He likely knew that war was going to resume at some point, as we mentioned a few times already, but so soon? He just didn't have the capital to undertake such an endeavor. But looking at the circumstances, he began his preparations. Napoleon soon met with his naval staff to discuss how they could inflict the maximum amount of damage on Britain believing that menacing our economy again would be their best option of winning a prolonged conflict. He began mapping canals, scoping out areas to build munitions factories, and focusing on potential recruitment and educational centers. By the end of April, the situation had reached the event horizon, the point of no return. Britain demanded the retention of Malta for another seven years, the cessation of Lamedusa, a small island off the coast of Tunisia, as a naval base, the evacuation of the French forces from Holland, and compensation for the Sardinians for their acquisition of Piedmont. Napoleon, incensed by these demands, basically told Talleyrand that when he spoke with Whitworth to let him know that any, quote, ultimatum was nothing but a euphemism for war. Quote, If the note contains the word ultimatum, make him understand that the word means war. If the note does not contain this word, make him insert it, remarking that we must really know where we are and that we are weary of this state of uncertainty, that once the ultimatum is given, everything is broken. Now, Whitworth, who himself was resigned to the state of affairs, used this occasion simply to ask for passports, you know, 
standard procedure for diplomat who was about to get expelled from his country of operation. And so it was. On May 11th, Napoleon held a meeting with the seven members of his foreign affairs section of the Conseil d'État to discuss the British ultimatum. Only Joseph Bonaparte and Talleyrand voted to continue negotiations. The other five, they voted for war. Whitworth would leave Paris on May 12th, and on May 16th, France's Council of Britain was on his way back to France. That same day, Britain issued letters of marque and reprisal, which allowed them to seize all French ships in British ports and waters. Britain was now under the impression that Napoleon would be too scared in his position to fight, and that many of those in his army, tired of over a decade of war, would not want to return to the battlefield for a man who billed himself as a peacemaker and now was on the precipice of restarting a war. But, well, as we know, that was a serious miscalculation on the part of the British. Nevertheless, fearing that Napoleon would not meet their ultimatum, they made the first move, and on May 18, 1803, Britain declared war on France. The Treaty of Amiens was dead, and it lasted just short of 14 months. Napoleon would respond by arresting all military-aged British men in France and ordering them interned. Some would be returned to Britain, but others, however, would spend the remainder of the Napoleonic Wars in French custody. And that seems like a perfect time to end this episode, because from here on out, the fighting that will define the remainder of our story, and obviously that of Napoleon, will no longer be known as the French Revolutionary Wars, but rather the Napoleonic ones. And next week, we will embark on a 12-year journey that will change the course of European and world history. The year of peace was over, and the age of Napoleon was now underway.